Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, heard here on FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining us to listen to a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, Bishop Sheen will speak to young and old alike. And we'll begin our program with a reflection he gave a number of years ago entitled Old Pots. And then during the second half of our broadcast, Archbishop Sheen will give a reflection to young people entitled Love and Sex. So I would encourage you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. You good people are at a distinct disadvantage in coming to hear me. First of all, I have no papers, and therefore you never know when I'm going to finish. You could say, oh, he has only three more inches to go. One of the reasons I never use a paper is because I once heard a woman speaking of a sermon of a bishop. She said, glory be to God, after he had read his talk. If he can't remember it, how does he expect us to? (laughs) You're going to hear a subject today that you've never heard before. I'm going to talk about pots, old pots. Have you ever called any person a pot? Sure you have. Do you know that God calls us pots too? That will be the sermon, pots. And I will begin it with a text from St. Paul. It is from his letter to the Corinthians. I heard a reader the other day, read the epistle to the Filipinos (laughs) instead of the Philippians, and another who read the second letter to the theologians. We are no better than pots of earthenware to contain this great treasure. And this proves that such transcendent power does not come from us, but is God's alone. Notice that we have a treasure inside of us, which is grace. Christ's life is in our body. But the body's a pot, like a pot of earthenware. Never before has anyone put put such a treasure in so trivial a deposit. God doesn't change the nature of our pots when he makes us his children. 
For example, Moses was called to be the leader of Israel and Moses stuttered. Three times God said to Moses, or Moses said to God, I can't talk, I stutter. And God said to him, well, let your brother Aaron talk for you then. But he would not remove the stuttering. That was the nature of his pot. Peter was impetuous, always impetuous. Thomas was lugubrious and sad, always looking for rain on the day of the picnic. God did not change his nature. Paul was a man of fire, rather intolerant. The treasure was put into that pot. And then, if we're ugly, God leaves us ugly. St. Vincent de Paul was a very ugly man. But he contained a great treasure. So let me take you through Scripture and describe God's way of dealing with pots. First of all, where does the treasure come from? Well, the treasure comes from God. And here we go back to the marriage feast of Cana. Our blessed Lord attended this wedding, and there were six water pots, and there were large ones containing 20 or 30 gallons of water. Now, this gives you some idea of how much wine our blessed Lord made, 120 or 180 gallons of wine. Now, the water pots were used by the Jews for purification. They had a peculiar kind of washing. They had to wash their, their uh, hands in such a manner as to let the water drip down their fingers. Then they would rub the palms together. And some of these practices were so bound up legally that to break them was considered very serious. Now, here we are just before our conversion. We're like these six water pots. Or before our baptism. And our blessed Lord changes the water into wine. He still keeps the same pot. The steward said they have no wine. Why didn't they have any wine? Why did it all give out? Can you imagine wine giving out in a wine country? And certainly, any father would prepare adequate wine for a wedding ceremony. Why did it give out? Because our blessed Lord brought along all of his disciples. They liked wine then. It was the first case of gate crashing in the history of Christianity. So our blessed Lord leaves the water pots as they are, but changes the water into wine. As the poet Crashaw put it so beautifully, the unconscious waters saw their God and blushed. One would like to write a line of poetry of that kind and die. When God changes our nature, it's very much like, for example, if this marble suddenly began to bloom. 
That would be something that does not belong to the nature of marble. It would be a supernatural act for marble. If the flowers on the altar of Our Lady suddenly began to walk around the room, that would be a supernatural act for a flower. And if a dog began to quote Shakespeare, that would be something that does not belong to his nature. And if we, who are just creatures of God, just pops, are suddenly endowed with a traitor so that we participate of God's nature as we participate of the nature of our parents, then that's a supernatural act for us. So when, therefore, does the pot get this treasure? It gets it at the moment that the soul receives grace. Now, how much grace and how much treasure do we receive? That depends upon our emptiness. If a box is filled with salt, it can't be filled with pepper. If I am filled with a love of self, I cannot be filled with Christ. Therefore, all spirituality is dependent upon eccentration, getting rid of the ego. Not so much using the word I. Here I take you to another incident of pots. There was a poor old woman in the Old Testament who had two sons who were about to be sold as creditors because she could not pay her debts. And Elisha the prophet came and asked her what she had. She said, all I have is this small pot of oil. Well, Elisha said, send out your sons to the neighborhood. and Bring in all of the pots that you can find. Then Elisha said to the woman, now begin to pour the oil. Well, the woman began to pour the oil, and it didn't stop. And it filled one vessel, one pot, then another pot, and another. And finally she said to her son, hurry, another pot. And, and uh, the son says, there is no other pot. And it stopped. So God pours his grace into us according to our emptiness. And I will tell you later what helps to create that emptiness. This is one of the reasons why some people, for example, do not receive an increase of grace, why we're not saints. We have too much of the ego, the I in us. So then we get our grace, our treasure, from God, as exemplified by Cana. We must be empty. And then another condition is that sometimes God will put us through trials. And he will do that just in order to bring us closer to him. Now, we sometimes think we should never have trials. As a matter of fact, this is part of Christianity. Remember that Christianity began with a defeat. The victory came only at the end. The defeat began with the cross. Our blessed Lord, therefore, sends us trials. Now, here's an example of trial. 
I will read for you a passage from Jeremiah. And this passage is not just alone about the pot and the treasure, but it is rather about trials that come to different pots. I will first read Jeremiah, and then I will, I will um, explain it to you. And I'm always reading from the uh, New English Bible. In Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 11, all his life long, Moab has lain undisturbed like wine settled on its leaves. Not emptied from vessel to vessel, he has not gone into exile. Therefore the taste of him is unaltered and the flavor stays unchanged. What is behind this prophecy of Jeremiah is the description of how wine was made in those days. Grape juice was poured into a vessel. The grape juice settled. The dregs or the leaves went to the bottom. The winemaker would then pour the wine into another vessel or pot, leave the dregs in the first vessel. Then he would do it the third, fourth, and fifth time, always leaving the dregs behind. Now, God is speaking to Moab, the people of Moab. They were the enemies of the Jews. They would not allow the Israelites, for example, to cross through their land. Is that a signal for me to quit that bell? No? I never know. They wouldn't, for example, allow the Israelites to cross through their land. Now, God is saying, Moab, you people have never had any trial or tribulation. You've never gone into exile like the Jews. And because you've never gone into exile, your wine is unfermented, it's stale, it's sour. Here the scripture indicates that we sometimes will be shifted and our positions will be changed. We may have a checkered career. We may have blessings for a time and then we'll have adversities. All this is to make the more perfect wine. God does not like us to settle down. Because when we do our pot becomes full of dregs and leaves. And that brings me to another story about pots. Now suppose I tell you there were 87 examples in scripture. What would you do? Two hours and a half at least it would take. But it's not going to take that long. The next one is also from Jeremiah. And this is a very beautiful one. I love to read this passage. It is um, chapter 18, verse 1. God speaks to 
this great prophet Jeremiah. These are the words that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house, and there I will tell you what I have to say. So I went down to the potter's house and found him working at the wheel. Now and then a vessel he was making out of the clay would be spoiled in his hands. And then he would start again and mold it into another vessel to his liking. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Can I not deal with you, Israel, says the Lord, as the potter deals with clay? You are clay in my hands, like clay in his house of Israel. Now let me explain this. Jeremiah is told to go down to the potter's house. There he found a man at a wheel with clay at a table nearby. The potter has the intent of making a very fine vase. If it's expensive, it's a vase. If it's cheap, it's a vase. He has the intention of making, say, a Ming vase. And as he plies his finger over the wheel and the clay on it, it breaks and it falls to the ground. Does he leave the clay there? No. He picks it up and he said, well, if I can't make a vase, I shall make a vase. And so he makes it into an old pot. Now, God has the intention to make each and every one of us of ours. But we all do not turn out the way he wants us to be. And the way that we very often want to be. Does God reject us? No, he doesn't. He puts us again on the wheel and turns. And he makes us into a lesser vessel. But we are still his. Never despair, therefore, because there has been a failure. God does not let you go. The Father continues to work with you and to turn you into, even though it is a common vessel, one that can still contain the treasure of his grace. And we are very often, when tribulations and trial come, we are to see that we're clay in the hands of the potter. And God is molding us. On the last day, we'll be very grateful, too, that God did take his time in making us better. George Bernard Shaw said, it is too bad that youth was wasted on the young. No, I think it's a good thing that youth was wasted on the young. 
because when we get older, we get a little wiser. And God has a better opportunity sometimes of working with his pots. Now we come to the last of the analogies of the pot. This is the story of the woman at the well. The time is high noon. The land is Samaria. Now, Samaria was the ham in a sandwich. The Holy Land was divided into two parts, Judea and Galilee. Judea was on the right side of the tracks. Galilee was on the wrong side of the tracks. When the Babylonians, six centuries before Christ, took over this land, they brought in some of their own people who intermarried with the Jews. And they produced a hybrid race called the Samaritans. Now, the Jews would never have anything to do with the Samaritans. As a matter of fact, they would not accept any money for the building of the temple from the Samaritans. Now, I can't give you a better idea than that of how much they must have hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, in their turn, when the Jews were in captivity, they would telegraph the dates of the feast by lighting fires on mountaintops. Samaritans would always light the fires two or three days in advance to confuse the Jews. The Samaritans would throw bones into the temple to desecrate it. So our blessed Lord now comes to this well at high noon, sits down tired, tired. And a woman comes to draw water. Now she should not have been there at noon. No woman in a hot country ever comes at high noon to draw water from a well. There was a reason for it. And our blessed Lord says to her, will you give me to drink? Whenever our Lord wants a favor, he often asks for one. And she said, this well is deep, and you have no pot wherewith to draw. And how is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan? Our Lord said, if you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you would ask him for the fountain of living water. Our Lord was here describing grace. He was saying, under the analogy of water, that I will give you a kind of an inner spring, a fountain of truth and love. But she couldn't understand that. And our blessed Lord saw that she could not. And he said to her, go tell your husband. She said, I have no husband. Our Lord said, Thou answerest well, thou hast no husband, for thou hast five. And he with whom 
thou livest now as not thy husband. Now that was embarrassing. Now you know why she couldn't come in the morning at night. The women wouldn't let her come. She was an evil woman. She had to come alone at noon. Now that was rather disturbing to the Samaritan woman for a Jew to tell her that. How did he know anyway? Now what would you do if you were at that well and you were in that condition? I know what I would do. I would change the subject. Who, what woman, for example, with, with six men wants to talk to a one like our blessed Lord about adultery? So she changed the subject too. She said, let's talk about theology. Where should we worship? In Jerusalem as do the Jews or on the mountaintop as we Samaritans do? And our Lord said, neither. And he explained about the true worship of the Father. Well, she came to understand him and to know him better. It's interesting the different titles that she gave him in the course of that conversation. First, she called him a Jew. Then she saw that he was a gentleman. She addressed him as sir. Then prophet. Then Messiah, the expected one, the Christ. And when our Lord said to her, when she said, I, I know that Christ is coming, our Lord said, it is I who talks with you. Well, think of what a surprise that was. What does she do? She runs back to the Samaritan village. Incidentally, there are only about 150 Samaritans left in the world, pure Samaritans. She runs back to the Samaritan village. And the gospel says, she leaves her pot behind. No more need of it. She had waters now. And then she tells the people, and there is some indication in some of the gospel accounts that maybe she told only the men. She was going to get even with the women <laughs> because they wouldn't let her come out in morning or night. But can't you imagine this woman coming out again to the well with a lot of men flocking after her, all of her boyfriends? And, and they said to her, we believe now, but not because you told us, because we've seen with our own eyes. And the woman called our Lord for the first time in the hearing of the world, Savior. Jew, gentleman, prophet, messiah, savior of the world. And applying the lesson now of pots, we have a treasure within us, God's presence, God's grace. It is perfected by trial, by adversities born in his name. But there will come a moment when We'll meet the Lord, as the woman did, and we'll leave the old pot behind. And it's put into the grave.
But the treasure, the treasure goes to the Lord. And the spirit that goes to the Lord always retains affinity for that body. Because that old pot had something to do with the bearing of trials. It brought us to the communion rail. It united ourselves with the body and blood of Christ. And when, therefore, our spirit is glorified, there will come a day when the body itself will be glorified. You can't put, for example, you put an electric light into a, an alabaster vase and it will glow. We can see the innocence and divinity sometimes in children. Well, you put divinity into a human nature as it was, as was the case with our blessed Lord. His human nature must have glowed as it did at the transfiguration, which must have been a kind of a natural state of our Lord. And so, when we come to the general resurrection, our body is going to be completely transformed. Not the same that we have now with all of its imperfections, as the seed is not that which becomes the rose. So, our body will be in keeping with the grace that we have received. And my good friends... You've now heard a story, a sermon that you've never heard before on old pots. And may I recommend to you that you allow his fingers to work the clay. Then you'll not spoil his art, and then you'll not spoil your life. And someday, you'll no longer be a pot. You will be a main vase. God love you. Good Sunday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. It is great to hear him speak about old pots and how we are going to become Ming vases one day. And so these great words of encouragement. And so let us return now to Fulton Sheen's retreat uh, that he's been giving. Uh, We shared uh, two reflections last week, and of course we'll share two more this week. And uh, there is actually 12 in this series, so uh, we're going to be thoroughly entertained. And so now he will address young people and give a reflection on the topic of love and sex. Now, a word to you young people. It is very hard for you to realize that your parents lived in a day when no bicycle needed to be locked. When Doors were left unlocked at night. When anyone could walk the streets of a large city without being mugged or attacked, those were days of peace. You have never seen them. It probably is hard for you to realize that that's the way America once was. 
Now, how did this change come about? Why suddenly have we had so much dishonesty? Let me tell you this story about dishonesty. I was in one of the big hotels of this country. The manager told me that he found a cashier stealing money. This woman had a very wide pocket in her skirt, and she would reach in the drawer and take bills and stick them in. And they saw her, and one day they caught her in the act and discharged her. The union said to her, you may not discharge her. If you discharge her, we will call a strike on the hotel and call everyone out of the hotel. The litigation went on for about three months. The union won. They had to take the girl back. Do you know what their argument was? They said to the hotel manager, did you ever tell that girl it was wrong to steal? No, tell said, no, we never told her it was wrong to steal. Well, then how would she know? See how much the world has changed? Now, what made it change? I think maybe we can pinpoint a date. 8.15 in the morning, the 6th of August, 1945. Can any of you recall what happened on that date? It's history. Before you were born, many of you. Yes, what was it? The witch? The war? No. It was the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima in Japan. When we flew an American plane over this Japanese city and dropped the atomic bomb on it, we blotted out boundaries. There was no longer a boundary between the civilian and the military, between the helper and the helped, between the wounded and the nurse and the doctor, between the living and the dead. For even the living who escaped the bomb were already half dead. So we broke down boundaries and limits and from that time on, the world has said, we want no one limiting me. So that you people heard the song, you've sung it yourselves, I gotta be me, I gotta be free. You want no restraint, no boundaries, no limits. I have to do what I want to do. Now let's analyze that for a moment. Is that happiness? I gotta be me. I've got to have my own identity. Are any of you on a basketball or football team? You can't be yourself, you've got to live for a team. The coach of the Oakland Raiders, Coach Madden, told me, he said, what's happening to our Catholic schools? He said, I have boys from Catholic colleges coming to my football team and they say, I got to do my thing. How am I ever going to have a football team? Everybody has to do his thing. A team means doing the other person's thing.
But we want no limits, no boundaries. There was a French play that was written, well, in your lifetime, by Sartre, in which there are three men in hell. And each of them talks about his pains, his aches, his protests, his worries, his ego, his identity. And the others are not listening. When the curtain goes down, the last line of the play is, my neighbor is hell. Why is the neighbor hell? Because he stands in my way. I can't do what I want to do. God is hell. Parents are hell. Church is hell. Why? Because they limit me. So now we're living in a world of just doing your thing without regard for law. Just suppose now to get very practical. Just suppose your parents never gave you pot training. Think it out. You gotta do your thing. <laughs> Two things would happen. Today, you would hate your parents for never having trained you. And secondly, you would hate yourself. So you are what you are today simply because your parents laid hold of you and said, You're go we're going to train you. They didn't allow you to do your thing. Now if I've made myself clear up to this point, you're living in an age where freedom is described as license. The right to do whatever you please. But that's chaos. If everyone did what he drove a car as he pleased, we'd have disorder in the streets. Certainly you can do whatever you please. You can stuff your Aunt Maisie's mattress with old razor blades. You can turn a machine gun on your neighbor's chickens. Then freedom becomes just a, a physical power. Then the one who is most free is the one who is most strong. So the world has changed. We used to have laws. We had obedience. We had discipline. Today, no boundaries, no limits. And you're not happy that way. Now, there isn't a boy here because you are more interested in games than the girls are. But when you play games, and it's true of the girls in a limited way, you have boundaries, you have limits. You've got foul lines on a basketball court. You play baseball, you've got lines running into the outfield. You play football, limits, boundaries. You couldn't have fun if someone, for example, was picked up the football and ran outside of the field. You say, no, you can't do that. We got limits. Well, why don't you respect it in other things? If that's the way you want it in games, why don't you want it that way in life? Then we're happy. 
Now, what is the one thing in this free world, thanks to the press and television, that is the major interest of the young? It's sex. So let's talk about it. Today, sex has become almost mental. Every advertisement has to use it so that you are inclined always to think about it. What is it, really? Well, the reason you want to know about it is because it's a mystery. What is a mystery? Well, a mystery is a sacrament. As a matter of fact, the Greek word mysterion is the Latin word sacrament and the English sacramentum and the English word sacrament. Now, what is a sacrament? And then we'll understand sex. Every sacrament or every mystery has two elements. First, physical. Secondly, spiritual. Something that is visible, something that is invisible. Take, for example, baptism. What is the physical side of baptism? Water. What is the invisible side of baptism? The cleansing of the soul to make us children of God. A word is a sacrament because there's something audible and then there's something invisible about it, namely the meaning of the word. Take, for example, a pun. I don't know whether I can think of one at the moment, but... Oh, yes, here's one. A little girl was once asked, what are you going to do when you get as big as your mother? And the little girl said, diet. Now, you see, you laughed at that. Now, why did you laugh at that? If, if for example, a horse heard that joke, the, the horse wouldn't give a horse laugh. Why do you laugh? Because in addition to hearing the sound that a horse would also hear, you got meaning out of it. You got purpose. The Eucharist is a sacrament, a mystery. Something you can see, bread. Something invisible, the presence of Christ. Sex is a mystery. There is something physical about it. Everyone is either male or female. It's that simple. Period. Not at all complicated. What is the invisible side of sex? What is the mystery? It's the mystery of love. And it stands for something spiritual. First of all, sex stands for God's creative power given to people. So he gives the creative power to a husband and wife. Instead of directly creating us, he says to a father and mother, I will let you share my creative power. And you will give life. 
This is the spiritual side of marriage and of sex. But it also stands for something else. When you girls and boys get older, someday you'll hear, come to the altar. You'll be married. And there will be a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this is what you will be told. Every bride stands for the church. Every groom stands for Christ. Think of it. God intended that in marriage, the husband stands for Christ. The bride stands for the church. Does that mean that the, that the man is the head of the woman in the sense of domination? No. The man is the head of the woman in the sense of sacrifice. So as Christ gave himself up for his spouse, his bride, which is the church, so the husband sacrifices himself for the wife. Now that's the spiritual side of marriage and of sex. It therefore refers to love, human love between husband and wife, the love for God, the love for the church. One of the reasons why it is very difficult for parents ever to teach you the complete mystery of sex is this. They find it very hard, to, they can communicate the physical side, that's nothing. But to communicate to you the mystery, the deep, profound love that is involved, that is something that is almost impossible to describe. The poet said, would that I could utter the thoughts that arise in me when there was love in his heart. And therefore there will always be a difficulty in the way of explaining to you the mystery. Now, this is what it is. It's God's gift. His creative power. And it's not to be used until God gives the power. Now, for example, where's my Lieutenant Fitzgerald? He's around here someplace. Well, now, Lieutenant Fitzgerald has been with me every day since I've been here. Suppose I took his uniform and put it on. Well, first of all, it wouldn't fit me. But suppose it fit me, fitted me. Well, I would then go out on the street in his uniform and begin directing traffic. I would have no authority to direct traffic, even though I was wearing the uniform. I have to be empowered by civil authority to wear that uniform and direct traffic. And so you have to be empowered to use this mystery. You cannot use it up and by yourself. We're in school, see, that's change of classes. So I'll change my subject now and give you another idea <laughs> to keep you interested. The new idea to which we pass is the difference in which the difference of love in a young man and in a love young woman. 
Now, I hope I can impress you boys and you girls with this difference. It will say particularly you girls. There's a world of difference in which a man loves a woman and a woman loves a man. A world of difference. A boy can love a part of a woman. A woman can love only the whole man. Now that is why, my dear girls, that the boys will talk about your legs. They can love a part of you. They can love a dimple, but then they have to marry a woman. Do you ever talk about boys' legs? Never. You never mention boys' legs. Why? Simply because you're not built that way. Boys different. That's the reason you got to watch the boys. Don't think they love you simply because they love a part of you. But you girls, you're slow to love. And the boys will say, oh, you're cold. You're not cold. You're wise. That's what it is. You can't love until you give yourself totally and completely. So you wait. Therefore, do not rush into marriage. Take your time. Wait and see whether the man is capable of sacrifice or not. And then the man, too, if he spoils you in any way, will not have the same love afterwards as before. There's an interesting story in the scripture, and that is always the place to go for wisdom in understanding human actions. Amnon was in love with the young woman in David's palace, Tamar. And Amnon one day pretended he was sick. And he asked Amnon to bring him some cakes. Amnon brought the cakes. And, I mean, uh, Tamar brought the cakes. Then Ammon assaulted Tamar. And then he said to her, Now get out. Then he called the servants, Lock the door, send her away. And scripture says, The hate with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. In other words, he knew he was guilty. He had spoiled something. He had plucked a young blossom. And he projected the guilt to her as if she herself were guilty. A young girl told me once that a boy had ruined her and on the way back, he gave her a lecture on, you, you've got to watch out for boys. They're not good. They'll pretend they love you. He was trying to escape his guilt. 
So now we have learned that there's a world of difference between how a man loves and how a woman loves. And wait until you're wise and you're mature. And incidentally, we have a very long maturity. Did you know it in the United States? I think we have the longest juvenility in the world. The Jews, for example, had about the age of 13. Today, you are a man. Yesterday, you were a boy. Now you're grown. But we have people going back and forth from juvenility to maturity and crossing and recrossing the line. So wait until you mature in judgment. And finally, you will often hear among yourselves, boys and girls talking and saying, I don't believe anymore. I'm an atheist. Or I, I, I just can't believe in God and the like. Do not argue with them. I will give you a rule that will help you very much in life. Never pay very much attention to what people say. Pay attention to why they say it. What are they covering up? I was instructing a stewardess on an international airline. And I got up to the subject of confession and she said, now I'll never go to confession after hearing this instruction. I refuse to become a Catholic. Well, I said, take one more lesson. And then at the end of that instruction, you may discontinue. Well, at the end of the next instruction, she was in a veritable creed. She shrieked, screamed, let me out of here. Now I'll never be a Catholic. I said, my dear girl, there's no proportion whatever between what you have heard and the way you're acting. Have you had an abortion? She said, yes. She finished instructions. I later witnessed the marriage and baptized the baby. Do not pay attention to what people say. Why do they say it? Why was she attacking confession? It was her way of escaping her inner guilt, blaming it onto the sacrament. And when you hear young people say, I'm atheist and so forth, do not argue about their faith. Look into their morals. How are they living? That's the important thing. And hence our blessed Lord said, Blessed are the clean of heart, the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Purity gives us vision. If the window is dirty, the light cannot come in. If our morals are bad, then the faith in the light of God cannot come into us. So keep yourselves clean. Now, you're wonderful young people. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will inspire to recall some of the things that I've talked to you about today. I've been very frank. And I assume your goodness and that you'll always be good. And for you girls, may I say that there is such a thing as the apostolate of beauty. The apostolate of beauty. 
Do not be ashamed to think of that. You're young, attractive, but the mere fact that you're young, you're vivacious. Do you realize that when beauty is virtuous, it's far more appealing than anything else? You recognize that I have power, the good Lord has given me the power of word, but he's given to you this other power. And it's more powerful, really, because, as a wise old Greek said, everyone loves beauty. So practice the apostolate of beauty. And as for you, young men, life is hard. It's a struggle. But the Lord will not be failing in his goodness to you. And now with that... I conclude because I don't want to keep you any longer and I will finish with a story about a priest who was talking on the 12 minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament and he had talked for an hour and 45 minutes and had finished only three. He saw the audience was getting a bit tired and so he introduced the next one with some degree of histrionics and he said, and now, and now, where shall I place Habakkuk? Someone got up in the back of the hall and said, He can take my seat. <laughs> You're free now. The Lord love you and bless you and keep you good because you're going to make the church in the next 30 years. And we depend on you. Thank you, and God love you. Good Sunday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I want to thank my good friend at FultonSheen.com for providing these quality recordings for this broadcast. You can visit his website at www.FultonSheen.com and there you can download for free the Fulton Sheen phone app on your iPhone or Android device. And there are literally hundreds of audio recordings that you can purchase for pennies and build your own Bishop Sheen library. So again, please visit www.fultonsheen.com. So I want to wish that you all have a blessed week and that our good Lord will grant each and every one of you a very high place in heaven. And so until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. <laughs>